put for a black manifesto, Rashid Arain, introduction. The problems of contemporary art in the third world today are part of its socio-economic and political predicaments resulting from colonialism and its present relationship with the West. We must therefore go beyond formal and aesthetic considerations and look into the historical factors which influenced or suppressed artistic developments in the last few centuries, as well as those forces which are today predominant in the third world. By third world, we mean Asia, Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. But we must also include in it all those non-European peoples whom we shall call collectively blacks or black people who now live in various Western countries and find themselves in a similar predicament to that of the actual third world. What concerns us here specifically is the situation of contemporary visual art in the third world. But we cannot meaningfully deal with the problems of visual art alone, isolated from the cultural context. What affects culture as a whole is also reflected in art activity. A cursory glance at the third world today shows that even after years of independence, its contemporary cultures in general and visual arts in particular remain what could be described as the stagnant backwaters of Western developments or what Paulo Freire calls the culture of silence of the masses. There does exist, however, an increasing awareness of the situation and efforts being made to confront the problem. We must therefore look into how this problematic situation is actually being dealt with. How are third world people trying to enter the modern era or and create their own contemporary history? If their voices, if their voice is muted or not heard at all, what are the un underlying causes and what are the actual alternatives open to them? The awareness that the third world must now find a direction which is different from the imposed from that imposed on it by the West has been growing. And in fact, organized organized attempts pointing towards this goal have recently been made. But these efforts have either remained confined within different regions or lacked a clear ideological perspective. They have not therefore made any unifying impact on the overall situation or offered a real challenge to those forces which have been responsible for the present predicament or its art and culture. This is partly due to the lack of direct communication of ideas between the third world countries and the problem has been further compounded by the extremely oppressive political situation in many third world countries today and which is in most cases the legacy of colonialism or and the result of western imperial domination although there does exist an opposition to imperialism and questions are being asked about the growing dominance of western culture the general situation in practice remains west oriented that is even when there is a strong tendency among many Afro-Asian countries to maintain the con continuity of their own traditions, resulting in the preservation and revival of old forms, particularly their reintroduction in contemporary works, the actual result or its underlying criterion often tends to conform to the standards created in the West. 
This could be explained by the fact that it is not unusual today for many Afro-Asian countries to seek advice from the so-called Western experts of Oriental slash African art in understanding their own traditional past and to depend on guidance from the West for contemporary developments. And therefore, third world artists today are in general accepting the quote unquote supremacy of Western developments in the contemporary field by following whatever styles are developed or produced in the major art centers of the West. This not only uproots them from the reality of their own culture and history, but leads them into an alienated situation which cannot question the domination of foreign values, thereby also denying them any opportunity to develop their art indigenously. This is not, of course, due to what many Western critics would have us believe. As Edward Lucy Smith has put it, in places such as India and Japan, traditional culture between the wars was already in a state of decay. It was natural, therefore, that artists in those countries should try and rebuild upon the European and American model." End of quote. It is typical of many, if not most, Western critics not to see things in the correct historical perspective. Mr. Lucy Smith has very cleverly tried to conceal the actual truth. He may have impressed his own lot, but he cannot fool us. Who does not know the Western colonialism in India, and for that matter in the whole Third World, was directly responsible for what he himself calls a state of decay of traditional culture? And then he has the arrogance to suggest that it should be natural for the people who have been subjected to the traumatic experience of colonialism to rebuild their future on the model created by those who once were and still are their oppressors. This is no more than an attempt to keep the third world people perpetually under Western domination so that apologists like Lucy Smith may continue enjoying their international privileges granted by the system they unashamedly serve. It is essential not to fall into the pitfalls of the Western attitude that tends to disguise the truth. On the one hand, Western interpretation of human history is often extremely biased against non-European peoples and their achievements. And on the other, while ignoring the real dynamics of historical developments, it lays a great emphasis on the individual achievements of Western man, a man supposedly struggling against all odds. The fact is that socioeconomic and political forces play a fundamental role in molding, nourishing, supporting, sustaining all human productive and creative activities, both physically and psychologically. This brings us face to face with the question of the development of our own socioeconomic and political institutions. The question here really is, what actually happened to these institutions and why did they fail to play an historical role in providing support to the indigenous developments of arts in the third world in the colonial period of the, la of the last few centuries? The answer to this is, of course, well known, but not widely and fully acknowledged, particularly in the West, for reasons which we hope would become more clear by the end of this manifesto. Contrary to what we are often told by the West, the colonial era was one of the most exploitative and oppressive periods in human history and its legacies are still with us today as part of neocolonialism. This was the period when the West preached human liberty, equality, and fraternity. 
But at the same time, it was the very same West which, in brutal and blatant violation of basic human dignity and in contradiction to its own presumed human values, actually enslaved and subjugated the majority of the world's population and plundered its resources for the West's interests alone. The wealth it thus acquired helped the West develop its various institutions. This development was in fact achieved at the expense of ignoring, if not actually suppressing, the historical developments of indigenous institutions. And on top of this, it had the audacity to perpetuate lies about the primitiveness of indigenous third world peoples, whom, as most Western people still believe, the West only wanted to civilize. The truth of the matter is, whether one likes it or not, that the actual aim of colonialism was to merely appropriate other people's wealth and resources by hook or by crook, and as a result of which, the West was able to become what it is today. As Franz Fanon has rightly said, quote, this European opulence is literally scandalous, for it has been founded on slavery, it has been nourished with the blood of slaves, and it comes directly from the soil and from the subsoil of that underdeveloped world. The well-being and progress of Europe have been built up with the sweat and dead bodies of Negroes, Arabs, Indians, and the yellow races. We have decided not to overlook this any longer." End quote. Italics added. While the West flourished during colonialism, Western art also flourished along with the emergence of its various institutions. The historical developments of Western art of the modern era took place not because of the mental superiority of Western artists, as is commonly believed in the West, but due to the advantage they had by being placed within the complex totality of developing forces of an historical process. And this was made possible to a large extent with material resources from the third world. While the historical process in the West provided Western artists with necessary incentives or driving force for their creativity, colonialism suppressed the development of indigenous art and culture in the third world by preventing the historical development of the productive resources of its peoples. For this reason, the history of Western art over the last few centuries also becomes an issue here. Not only for the fact that its developments took place at the cost of third world people, but more essentially because of the West's assertion today that its history must be accepted as the mainstream of human developments and that in the light of this, all human achievements must be seen. The establishment of European civilization as the mainstream is one of the most catastrophic developments that have taken place in human history, destroying or suppressing other cultures and civilizations. And today, this European mainstream is used to measure the achievements of the people whose very historical developments were suppressed by it. It is therefore not a surprise that the West either ignores other people's contributions to human knowledge or history, or it allocates them an inferior status determined by an attitude that sees all non-European phenomena as ahistorical. This is, of course, a fundamental feature of the dominant ideology that perceives the world in terms of its different parts arranged in a hierarchical order, so that this system serves the interests of those who control it from the top. As such, the West sees the rest of the world as its own appendage and expects all the world's resources, natural as well as human, to serve the interest of Western civilization alone, 
This Western perception of the world has reduced today the whole world into a global village, with a vulgarly affluent West at its center, surrounded by starving people with begging bowls in their hands. Moral double standards, arrogance, hypocrisy, and racism are some of the manifestations of the ideology which maintains that Western people alone have a civilized existence and that they should constantly maintain and protect this, even at the expense of denying other peoples their humanity. While Europeans are hailed as patriots, freedom fighters, and heroes, others are denounced as bloodthirsty terrorists. The various attempts of pseudo-scientists to prove the superiority of the white race is also part of the same apparatus which deliberately perpetuates lies about non-European peoples. And these attempts to give scientific respectability to racism only reveals the hideous designs of those who are integral part of the Western imperialist domination of the world today. The present state of affairs in the third world is not the result of the natural laziness or a lack of imagination of its peoples, as we are often told by the West. Neither is it the legacy of the devastation of some oriental barbarian. It is in fact the direct consequence of the colonial pillage by the civilized West, whose pretentious claims to all humanity have now turned out to be no more than a mask to hide its pathologically excessive greed and which has today reached dangerous proportions. The Western obsession for more and more material wealth, mostly in the form of consumer goods, which in the West is euphemistically called a higher standard of living, cannot be perpetually fulfilled without further exploitation and appropriation by the West of resources which are not its own resources. These resources actually belong to the third world peoples who themselves should now utilize them to fulfill their own needs by developing their own productive forces and rebuilding their own socio-economic, political, educational, cultural and artistic institutions which must be free from foreign domination. Against this historical background, therefore, we must place the present predicaments of our art and culture. We must recognize that as long as we allow the West, and for that matter anybody else, willingly or unwillingly to dominate our lives, we will only be exploited. As long as our physical and mental resources are under its direct or indirect control, our development will either be suppressed or used for the benefit of the West alone, its art and culture, and its civilization. In other words, we must free ourselves from foreign domination before we can create our own contemporary art and culture. But this does not mean that we have no option open to us at present, or that we cannot carry on an art activity. Of course, if we continue accepting the general situation today, which demands our subservience to the West, we are doomed as a people. On the other hand, we can and must stand on our feet and oppose those alien values, as well as our own, which obstruct radical change by preventing the development of internal dynamism of our people. And in the process of confronting these values, we can and shall discover new art forms that will authentically reflect our own reality today. However, before we proceed further to look into possible alternatives, we must examine here the various aspects of those forces which are holding us back. The third world today. One of the important features of colonialism was and is to violently suppress the indigenous cultures of the colonized country and then impose its own cultural values on the colonial people. 
in many instances, um, colonialism imposed an actual ban on native cultural practices taken away by force from the people, their cultural artifacts, sorry, excuse me. Um, the loot was then transferred to the West. As a result, most of the third world heritage is today either hidden away, stored in the basement lockers of Western museums, or insolently displayed in their glass cases as part of the evidence of the West's pride and precious possessions. After exterminating millions of people and then looting their belongings, the West today has the audacity to call itself the protector of the artistic and cultural heritage of the world. At the same time, colonialism created and creates a native bourgeoisie by giving some of the native population Western colonial education and by awarding them some socioeconomic privileges and a share in the political power. In turn, this native class, to quote Amilcar Cabral, assimilates the colonizer's mentality, considers itself culturally superior to its own people and ignores or looks down upon their cultural values. With the coming to power of this native bourgeoisie after independence, colonialism is only replaced by neocolonialism, which in fact is a general phenomenon in the third world today. One of the most important characteristics of neocolonialism is the perpetuation of Western imperialist domination in the decolonized countries through Western cultural penetration, against which the native bourgeoisie cannot and does not act as a shield. On the contrary, its own lifestyle facilitates further propagation of Western values, which openly relegate the indigenous cultural life. In effect, it virtually becomes an instrument through which Western culture is pro projected as civilized and progressive vis-a-vis -vis the primitive and backward nature culture. It's therefore no surprise that immediately after the Second World War, Western imperialism under the leadership of its most powerful country, the US, unleashed an unprecedented cultural propaganda in the major cities of the Third World, particularly in Asia and Africa, through its control of mass media, film, TV, glossy publications, etc. The whole purpose of this propaganda, which constantly assaulted people's sense, senses with alien images of the values of Western life, was to inflict their minds with the illusion of a better life in the West and to lure them into believing that they could also possess this life if only they would abandon their own values, thereby making them develop a sense of their own inferiority. The aim of the cultural aggression, in fact, has always been to make the dominated people totally abandon their own values and accept the projected superiority of imperialist culture, turning them into passive objects of Western domination. Since, as Amelka Cabral has pointed out, with strong indigenous cultural life, foreign domination cannot be sure of its own perpetuation. At a time where people were trying to recover from their colonial past and were looking forward to a new future free from foreign do domination, this new onslaught from the West not only caused a further loss of national culture, cultural identity among the native bourgeois who thus fell in love with the Babylon called America, it is also disturbed, it, if not shattered, the sense of direction among the urban 
intelligentsia who could have otherwise played a positive role in the post-colonial reconstruction of the country. The native bourgeois who was supposed to offer a new direction leading to a better and prosperous life, which had prom promised all its people during their anti-colonial struggle, instead became an instrument of an accelerated superficial change whose main drive force has been to turn their major native cities into the centers of the native bourgeois life based on vulgar imitations of the West. It set in the motion a process whose consequence can be seen today in the third world countries. A skyscraper rising from above poverty, striking chanting towns has became a symbol of progress. One only has to cast a glance to see the absurdity of present developments in most third world countries based on, Western, on the Western prescriptions. Instead of improving the land and waterworks to produce more basic and essential food, either the land is used to produce exportable commodities, or the peasants are recruited into the factories where, for example, Motorcycles, blue jeans, platform shoes, etc. are assembled slash manufactured mainly for the teenage kids of the affluent urban classes. Instead of improving livestock to increase milk production, Coca-Cola factories are set up everywhere. Instead of creating an incentive for the fishermen to catch more fish by providing them with better boats and equipment, the seashore is transformed into a holiday resort for the native uh, as well as international leisure class, and the inhabitants of the surrounding villages are turned into waiters, domestic servants, and entertainers. Consequently, some third world cities have become exotic brothels for globe trotters. The basic priority, the development of an indigenous economic infrastructure serving the basic needs and interests of all people, has been virtually ignored. Instead, the country's wealth has been appropriated by the few through trickery, deceit, and bureaucratic corruption, and spent mostly on the importation or production of Western consumer goods and sophisticated military hardware, which cannot, of course, fill the hungry bellies of the masses. It simply maintains the Westernized lifestyle of small native elites and their political power. Any human development which is based on foreign values, unless these values are absorbed through a critical process as part of the indigenous development, disturbs and suppresses the imagination and creativity of people, thereby destroying any incentive for the creation and development of new and original ideas. Instead, it perpetrates, perpetuates imitation, submission, and apathy which in fact characterizes native bourgeois life today. The native bourgeoisie does ends up trapped in its milieu, protecting its selfish interests, incapable of providing any leadership or support for the positive and progressive forces of the people. Instead, the people are fed with illusions, vulgar fantasies, religious fatalism, and populist slogans. All this leading to a life pattern which becomes insensitive to its own environment. And if all this is not enough to keep the people contented and or silent, they are mercilessly put down by the sophisticated oppressive state machinery on which the native ruling classes end up spending most of the country's wealth. 
It is therefore clear that the native bourgeoisie, which virtually becomes an agent of imperialist domination, cannot and does not protect the real interests of the people. It gives almost a free hand to the multinational foreign companies, which not only exploit the people indiscriminately, but cause great damage to indigenous cultural life. The following example, which is typical as well as topical, illustrates how an apparently innocent commercial operation persuades people to abandon their own cultural values and take up Western ways in the hope of improving their life, whereas the actual result is a disaster economically as well as culturally. In most parts of the third world, even today, breastfeeding is not only a common traditional practice, but also an important part of its socioeconomic reality. And it cannot be replaced by any other method without a real change brought about by the, by the conscious efforts of the people, of the people themselves in the economic forces, creating a sociocultural environment in which acts like bottle feeding and its various implications are fully grasped by the masses. An imposition of bottle feeding, on the other hand, particularly through an aggressive cultural propaganda, euphemistically called commercial ads, would, would um, in the pre uh, present third world environment, naturally create um, dangerous health uh, hazards and without giving much economic benefit. To say that the Western companies do not understand this simple act would amount to calling them idiots, which they are not. They couldn't care less as long as they make money. If their actions cause malnutrition among children, poverty and starvation, and even death, they do not consider, consider it their moral or human responsibility. It is well known now how Western baby food producers have been persuading the women in the third world into giving up their traditional breastfeeding in favor of modern bot bottle feeding simply to sell their products in the hope that it would help their children grow better, as suggested by the ads, many poor women switched onto bottle feeding even when they did not like their own milk. It not only deprived them of their hardened small incomes, which they had to spend to buy the manu manufactured baby milk, it also caused malnut malnutrition and, and a disease unknown before among these children. As a result, many of them died. The debate here is not about the merits or demerits of breastfeeding or bottle feeding. Neither is it the question of a failure of the women in the third world to grasp the new reality of bottle feeding. It would be very easy, of course, to accuse these women of a lack of awareness of the problems of hygiene in bottle feeding. But would anybody blame the mothers of the thalidomide, thalidomide children for their lack of scientific knowledge? The issue here is really the immorality of the whole money-making operations of the multinational companies in their total disregard of human life. Their aggressive commercial and cultural propaganda deceives people into believing that they can buy a better life by purchasing consumer products, which do not contribute to their welfare, but, but only further their poverty, and undermines people's cultural values, which would otherwise protect them from such vicious traps. The paradoxical situation in which the na native bourgeoisie finds itself after independence must also be recognized. On the one hand, its own lifestyle betrays its acceptance of the supremacy of Western cultural values. On the other, it cannot totally ignore the national aspirations of the people and their own culture. A resurgence of interest in indigenous art and cultural activities therefore occurs. 
But this development, which in most cases is manipulated by the native bourgeoisie to consolidate its political power by making it part of its populist demagogy, often fails to go beyond the level of mere entertainment or reminder of the past glories. The exuberant, colorful tribal dances at Nairobi Airport, Kenya, welcoming the arrivals of international celebrities, is an interesting example of the manipulation of indigenous culture by a native bourgeoisie, which prides itself on dressing up in European three-piece striped suits even on hot days. This is not to say that indigenous national art and culture should not play any role in international affairs. International diplomatic relations alone cannot provide a real dynamic for the historical development of national art and culture in the third world. In fact, if this becomes the only basis for the preservation or continuation of indigenous arts and cultural activities, as is the fact in most cases, the result in their degeneration into an exotic entertainment for those whose actual alliance lies with foreign culture. Although the wearing of indigenous dress does not necessarily reflect a genuine commitment to the development of national culture today, in view of the fact that indigenous dress is still an essential part of the masses in the third world, the European dress of the native ruling classes can only protect their separateness from the masses, if not an elevated status whose roots are embedded in European soil. It is the masses who actually retain and protect the values of their own culture, which, in the face of colonial domination, either remains in a stage of hibernation or continues maintaining its dynamism by resisting foreign domination. Indigenous culture, in fact, plays an important role in national struggle. But when the native bourgeoisie comes to power and offers foreign prescriptions for the country's post-colonial development, the dynamism of indigenous art and cultural life is either arrested or misdirected. Only the establishment of an indigenous socio-economic and political system, which genuinely serves the needs and interests of all the people, can enable the people to develop their own contemporary art and culture as an expression of the new dynamic of a liberated life. Western art versus third world. The people's struggle to move forward in history today cannot be successful until they become, or are made, fully aware of their own role in the historical process which requires their full participation on every level. This also requires their consciousness of their particular historical position from which they want to move forward and which must be linked to their historical past, their own cultural values and material conditions. The aim of foreign domination, on the other hand, is to take dominated people out of their history or and dislodge them from their particular historical position thereby destroying their sense of direction. In other words, the imposition of an alien history on the people demands that they should renounce, if not denounce, their own history, their own cultural values, their right to think and determine their destiny as free people, and that they must instead accept their subversions to foreign values so that they may not be able to lift a finger against their exploiters. The knowledge of Western art history as part of colonial education must have existed in the countries under colonialism, but the aim of its post-war accelerated propaganda as part of the overall Western cultural onslaught, which pretentiously projected Western art as a higher universal expression of human life, was to reestablish or perpetuate its pretend supremacy in order to prevent the emergence of indigenous forces in the decolonized countries. 
and to a large extent, the West has been successful in reimposing its history on the third world peoples when they were desperately looking for a new direction to move forward into the future and assert their independent existence as part of all humanity. When young artists in Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean were trying to emerge from the fog of colonialism, they found themselves in something of a dilemma. On the one hand, there was an awareness that their own traditional forms should play a, a fundamental role in contemporary developments, reflecting not only the spirit of the independent country, but their time as well. On the other, they found themselves surrounded by Western forms, which were becoming more and more intrusive in the post-independence period, since most of them were alienated from the people and were actually aspiring to become part of the newly developing urban socio-cultural milieu in which Western values started to play a predominant role. The Western models not only offered them a more attractive alternative, but also promised lucrative careers. It is therefore no wonder that so many third world artists should fall for Western art so easily and without understanding its historical developments. What we see today in general is either the third rate imitation of various Western styles from cubism to pop art or a hodgepodge of Western techniques and native imagery, the aim being the creation of modern works of art which also, also look ethnically original. The content of these quote experiments which can be termed neo-colonial art, reflects the confusion and divided loyalties of the native bourgeoisie on which the artists are dependent for their survival, economically as well as socially. The prevalence of neo-colonial art today also depends on the fact that it is largely recognized and encouraged by Western embassy staff and Western tourists who flock to the capitals of the third world looking for exotic entertainments and souvenirs. There also exist considerable forces that defy the above situation, but they are not yet fully recognized. On the one hand, there is a strong tendency now to renounce Western art altogether and return to what many third world artists consider their own heritage. It is too early to pronounce any critical judgment on the outcome of nationalist tendencies in the third world. But since it is part of the overall process, which tends to create its own independent identity, it is an important step towards the realization of an indigenous development. On the other, the isolation of third world artists is a big danger and is in fact being created by the aggressive role which Western art propaganda plays on an international level. As such, many third world artists have been forced to retreat behind their national frontiers. This not only deprives them of an opportunity to expand beyond their ethnic boundaries, it also makes them look exclusively and nostalgically to their own old traditions. Other third world artists have taken an entirely different direction by accepting the challenge of this modern age, while conscious of their own indigenous background, which they sometimes reflect in their work. They recognize the technological nature of various developments in the West. They consider it their legitimate right to make use of contemporary knowledge in their own work and without feeling any indebtedness to the West, just as Western artists were able to benefit 
and are still benefiting from their knowledge of Afro-Asian traditions, African sculpture, Islamic art, etc. What is singular about these artists is that they are innovators. Does they contribute to contemporary developments in their own right, by their own original ideas, concepts, and synthesis, antithesis. And more importantly, they offer a challenge to Western domination, but by defying the hegemony of art styles perpetrated and promoted internationally by the transatlantic gallery circuit of the Western world. But since these artists also defy the expectation of their native bourgeoisie, who would instead like them to be part of its mediocre and vulgar life. Many of them are not recognized in their countries of origin or in the West, where they often end up living as self-exiled residents or citizens of Western countries. This phenomenon is not only limited to the artists, of course, Many third world scientists, engineers, doctors, architects, teachers, etc., also end up living in the West. Some Latin American artists are recognized for their pioneering works in the post-war development of art in the West, particularly in kinetic art. But since their contributions have been widely acknowledged in the West and subsequently in their own countries of origin, perhaps because of their European descent, they did not find their identification with the Western mainstream, as well as their own acceptability by the West, problematic. They are outside the scope of this work. Under consideration here are in fact the underlying causes of the general and predominant phenomenon of mediocrity in the third world today, as well as the general non-recognition of the activities which avoid this mediocrity in defiance of cultural imperialism. But before we go further, the term mediocrity should perhaps be clarified. We do recognize the different levels of developments in different parts of the world at a particular time in history. But it is not an issue here because there are peoples who are not free to develop their capabilities. They're in fact deliberately deprived of the opportunity of their historical developments, thereby condemning them to a pattern of life in which mediocrity takes up a predominant position that eliminates all the forces which would, could give the life a new dynamic for its radical change. However, the phenomenon of mediocrity is not exclusively confined, confined to the third world, as one might think. It is actually international, varying in form and degree in different places. In case of the third world, its causes are primarily external, while in the West, they're internal as well. In the third world today, it is comprised of forms created by the imposition of alien values, which create stagnation in the indigenous process of development. In the West, it becomes a formalist transformation. Formal innovations, frequent stylistic changes, fashion, trendiness, gimmicks, etc., whose real content, in effect, mostly remains the same, sustaining the system that gives it its driving force and which is produced by the system's capacity to dominate and exploit people nationally as well as internationally. This brings us to the crucial question of the dominance of Western art in the world today. Is Western art really international in its spirit and expression or only an instrument of propaganda? Is internationalism of Western art and culture at this juncture in history beneficial to all mankind? If the purpose of internationalism is to bring different peoples nearer to each other, 
and create a better understanding between them? Why should it be monopolized by the West? Why aren't the people in of the third world playing any significant role in the development of so-called international art? The question here is not really of the lack of thought given to the position of the third world artist in Western discussions of art. Italics added, as Carolyn Tistel has put in The Guardian, 26th of April, 1975. But of the exclusion of the third world people from the contemporary developments, control and dominated by the West. The third world artist is not seeking a position in Western art, but his rightful place in the contemporary world, which is being denied to him. If Western art was confined to its own national boundaries or within the Western world, and it made no claims to the supremacy in the world, it would have not bothered us at all. Since Western art is pretending to be international, spreading its vicious tentacles all over the world, it is extremely necessary to question its real content and the motives behind its international expansion. Now let us take the example of American pop art. What international significance is there in the image of Coca-Cola, Marilyn Monroe, pinups, the American flag, hamburgers, etc.? These images are, of course, the ethnic images of American culture, and there is no reason why they should not play a role in the development of her art. But when these very images are universalized through an international projection, their function changes. They are no longer the harmless images of the popular culture or the innocent ambassadors of American arts and culture abroad. Their international function is to propagate American consumer culture through its glorified celebration by pop art and the underdeveloped world, and thus to undermine the indigenous values and their contemporary developments in the third world. No wonder that the ethnic art of modern icon makers of American high religion, pop slash consumer culture, is considered international art and is uh, reverently placed in the so-called historical mainstream, while the work of the Mexican artist Diego Rivera, for example, is either ignored by the international art pundits or relegated to non-history, quote-unquote. The only quote-unquote crime he seems to have committed was that he deified Western cultural slash art imperialism by rejecting the hegemony of art styles created in the art centers of Europe alone. Instead of merely serving the interest of Western civilization and history, he returned to his own people and committed himself to their reality. His work is a reflection of the socio-cultural, economic, and political environment in which he lived. Instead of understanding him in the context of his own socio-historical forces, his work has been dismissed by the Western art pundits as mere propaganda. We do not necessarily agree fully with the populist and propagandist philosophy in art, but is pop art not propaganda? If the West is only concerned with narrow boundaries of stylistic evolution within its own history and considers only the developments taking place in its metropolises at the expense of other contemporary developments, what right has it to champion the cause of internationalism in art and culture? The myth of internationalism of Western art must be now exploded. The fact is that there does not yet exist an art which truly reflects international spirit of men and women today. Western art only reflects the particularity of the West and has little to do with the actual reality of the world. It can therefore be said 
but Western art is not international. It is merely transatlantic art. It only reflects transatlantic culture of Europe and North America. The present internationalism of Western art is no more than a function of Western political economic power and its imposition of its values on other people. Therefore, in an international context, it would be more appropriate to call it imperialist art. We are not playing here with semantics. If by internationalism is only meant an expression of a phenomenon taking place in more than one country, an art movement emerging simultaneously at more than one place across national boundaries as a reflection of their cultural interrelationship, we would have no hesitation at all in accepting the internationalism of Western art. A style of wood carving is still being practiced in many places across national boundaries of most African countries, but would anybody call this an international style? In the present world context, the word international implies more than just a few countries, unless we accept that these few Western countries which constitutes about 25% of mankind, represent the whole world. Internationalism is now an expression of a global phenomenon. And we are sure Western artists, critics, do not disagree with us here. What they may still point out, which many often do, and not without arrogance to justify their claim of internationalism, is what they consider a natural influence of Western art in the world today which in fact must be placed in the context of cultural imperialism. However, even when a particular artistic development influences or accelerates developments elsewhere, the former does not by virtue of its influence become a reflection of internationalism. African art, for example, influenced many European artists. Some of them even imitated it at the beginning of this century, giving rise to one of the most important movements in the West, Cubism. But African art did not, as Europeans would themselves say, become international art, nor did the European artists become Africanized. The fact is that the Western mainstream draws materials from all sources, sucking knowledge from other traditions and cultures into its own continuing development, often for change for the sake of change. Western avant-gardists, can now even appropriate the forms which were created hundreds, thousands of years ago by peoples whom the West would call primitives. They were, in fact, more, of the way, more aware of the social function of these forms. And with the magic stick of art history, turn the demonism of ancient tribes into their own avant-garde art. On the other hand, if third world artists make use of modern methodology, creating original works that reflect their own contemporary reality. They would often be reminded of their indebtedness to the West, if not looked down upon as if they have actually stolen Western property. It is not uncommon for the third world artists to use contemporary techniques in their innovations to be seen on the margin or as followers of Western art. Instead of accepting them in their own right or as part of what is considered to be an international movement, they are often westernized through a weird logic that can only be a reflection of imperialist mentality. Nevertheless, the actual influence of Western art in the world today cannot be considered constructive. 
the nature and pace of the movement of Western art as part of Western cultural, cultural penetration in the third world, facilitated, of course, by the native bourgeoisie, cannot offer an opportunity to the people in general to examine it critically. This is not to say that Western developments do not have any positive and progressive aspects, which once analysed and grasped may benefit other peoples. But the aggressive proper propagation of Western values in the countries which are economically or technologically underdeveloped, and particularly when as a result of this, the indigenous productive forces are suppressed, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for the people to benefit positively from Western developments. It is no surprise that those countries which have understood the real motives behind Western cultural propaganda have rightly closed their national borders to Western ideas so they could generate their own developments without foreign interference. The international expansion of Western art is not incidental, nor is it due to its natural attractiveness. It is in fact part of the West's missionary zeal to civilize the primitives of the third world. The history of the last few centuries makes us see that behind this mask of civilizing other people, they actually exist insidious intentions whose only purpose could be, and is, to keep the third world people as an appendage of the West, so that their physical and mental resources are used for the perpetual development of Western civilization alone, creating a vicious circle in which the West continues thinking, creating, and producing, while the third world remains in a state of apathy and its people turn into more imitators and consumers. Of course, Western art propaganda alone cannot produce these results, but it functions as part of the West's economic, political, and cultural operations on an international level. The aggressiveness of Western art and propaganda is actually that of the dominant system. Specifically, the function of Western art domination is to deny the third world peoples of the indigenous developments of their contemporary art, and also to prevent the emergence of a unifying contemporary art movement other than in the West, in order to perpetrate or perpetuate the pretended supremacy of its own arts and culture. It's therefore no coincidence that America was suddenly awoken after the war to realize to a realization that she also had her own geniuses. It was a time when America, in order to establish her leadership as the most powerful imperialist countries, launched a massive worldwide propaganda, projecting herself as the most civilized country of the world. Clinging to her cultural tentacles were her artists, among other things, particularly action painters, later followed by pop artists, who thus reached as far as her propaganda could penetrate. As a result, these artists in no time became internationally known, turning many of the newly emerging third world artists into third rate abstract expressionists. It was also a time when donkeys and monkeys also became quote unquote abstract artists. It would be an exaggeration, of course, to say that everybody turned to paint drawing, but it certainly has an enormous impact since it was so easy to splash the paint around on the development of what has already been described as neo-colonial art. The close relationship between Western concept of international arts and, inter and international monopoly capital is obvious. As such, Western art is mainly developed and produced in the capitals of the most powerful Western capitalist countries and by white Western artists, for they are the ones acceptable to Western art establishments and then sold through the transatlantic gallery circuit at highly inflated prices that turn, into a precious, turn it into a precious product. 
market price that's become signifier, content, and criterion, which entitles a work of art to a place in quote unquote history books. Propaganda books would be thought would be though a more accurate description that are sent around the world for people to read about Western quote unquote geniuses. Once art is elevated to the position of a precious object through speculation and international publicity, it produces capital for its further propagation as a quote unquote unique object of universal significance. And in turn, this adds further to its preciousness and so on. And since all this takes place exclusively within Western historical and cultural contexts, it enhances Western civilization and contributes to its dominating power. The whole process of acceptance or rejection, evaluation, evaluation, propagation, and signification of art is maintained by an economically powerful art market, which operates like a stock exchange in the capitals of the Western world, capital, publicity, and speculation being its basic and essential tools. It also creates a privileged class of artists who in turn serve the market and its function in the system. Having been elevated to the pedestal of genius, these artists not only become trapped in a privileged socioeconomic milieu, believing in their semi-god status and their superhuman power, like Midas turning everything into gold, Picasso comes to mind here, but more importantly, they contribute to Western cultural domination by becoming instruments of its own international propaganda. Their superhuman and international status is in fact no more than an illusion created by all that money which flows into their bank accounts and their elevations as superstars on the world stage. The numerous and frequent claims of internationalism by the Western artists who are internationally known, the so-called radicals are not exceptions here, are as ludicrous as the very concept of an international art based exclusively on Western values and developments. The fact is that this facade of internationalism is essential for many of these artists to maintain their self-esteem by being elevated to a position from where they can look down upon the rest of the world. Their neo-colonial mental attitude is nurtured by the politico-economic power of the imperialist West, which provides them with all the material incentives for futile and self-indulgent activities. If we appear so condemning in our attitude towards the West, it is not because we are against Western people. They are in fact also the victims of the same dominant ideology, or that we are envious of their progress slash affluence. Neither are we turning our backs on everything Western, but in the present context of our relationship with the West, it is difficult for us to be more charitable towards those who are always endeavoring to accuse us of laziness, lack of imagination and incentives and so on, thereby obscuring their own misdeeds against humanity by perpetual reiteration of their pretentious claims to all human progress and civilization through their massive international propaganda. Those apologies of the system who cynically reproach us for not yet creating our own contemporary art with our own values and of so-called international standards must now get off our backs and stop telling us what we must or mustn't do or how we should develop our heart. Instead, they hold to examine their own roles 
in the process and context of cultural imperialism and get rid of their own deliberate ignorance and patronizing attitude. Is it asking too much? So that they may also see the world in its true perspective. It is to make it clear here that by West, we do not mean a monolithic West or for that matter, third world. We recognize that there are both reactionary and progressive forces on both sides of a dividing line. But although the fundamental relationship between the West and the third world remains as that of between the dominant and the dominated respectively, our criticism is not meant to be directed at the progressive forces in the West. Blacks in Britain. Imperialist domination does not end with exploitation of third world people in their own countries. It forces ordinary workers and peasants to leave their homes and search for a livelihood in the alien environment of its socially hostile metropolises. In addition, imperialist cultural propaganda, as well as specific recruitment, effectively lure many educated and tra trained young men and women into believing that they can find a better and more happy life if they leave their own countries and live in the West. The actual situation in which people from quote-unquote underdeveloped countries thus find themselves living in the advanced industrial societies of the West does not differ much from one Western country to another. We shall, however, confine ourselves here to our own predicament in Britain, but we do recognize that a similar pattern of racism and exploitation exists in other Western countries employing foreign labor, not forgetting, of course, the US and those Afro-Asian peoples who are still living under the yoke of racist colonial, colonial imperialist rule. Black people in Britain today cannot be treated in the same way as 25 years ago when, after being uprooted from our native soils, were railroaded into menial jobs. The aspirations of the younger generation of Blacks, particularly those born in Britain, are very different. We cannot and will not accept only shit work. If society cannot fulfill our expectations just because it does not wish to see us rising above our present existence at the bottom of the heap, we shall continue fighting ourselves for our rights. If some black kids are in the street and a few have become what the establishment, the establishment calls quote-unquote muggers, the fault does not totally lie with them, but with this society. However, two million blacks aren't going back home. Britain is our home and we will not accept our secondary and inferior roles in this society. We shall continue fighting for our equal human status. Through this, we are in fact contributing towards the, develop the development of this society into a better one for all to live in. What must concern us is not only the blatant manifestation of racism by right-wing fascists who are now demanding our return to the countries of our origin after we've been milked for 25 years as cheap labour, but also the subtle racist attitude that prevails in every field and at every level of British life. Quote, and I certainly wouldn't like to see a Negro minority taking over this country. A lot of nice bus conductors running the government isn't my idea of a sensible way out. John Osborne's above com comments, the observer in the 7th of on the 7th of July, 1968, on black people are in essence, not very different from the hysterical outbursts of Enoch Powell. 
Beside the subtle racism and paternalism of his remarks, his contempt for working people, both black and white, is clear. The absurd notion that blacks are taking over this country reflects the paranoia of his privileged lot. How could half a million Negroes take over a country of about 55 million people, which is still considered to be one of the most powerful in the world? Only racists can indulge in such absurd fantasies. That Mr. Powell is a racist is not even doubted by many white people. What one can perhaps do is to accuse him of hypocrisy. What Powell has so far said, and we are sure he will say it again, is that he is not against black people, but only our number. He would in fact accept a small number of us amongst his white society to do menial jobs. In other words, he would become a considerably reduced number of blacks who, because of their numerical disadvantage, would remain docile and not overstep their roles defined by him, and thus would find themselves unable to confront this society with its racist philosophy. But how does Powell's attitude differ from that of Osborne, who doesn't appear to like black people demanding more than the crumbs offered by his society? We have, we have quoted John Osborne only because his remarks, even today, typify a liberal attitude and that of the establishment, characterized by hypocrisy and paternalism. We are often told that this society is not really racist and that it does offer freedom of choice, same incentives and equal opportunities to all its people. Nice words, but are they also meant for us? Of course not. We must stick to bus conducting and let them write plays or produce works of art. It is no coincidence that black people are often portrayed in the media as waiters, objects of fun, exotic ethnic dancers and entertainers, muggers, smugglers, gangsters, etc., perpetuating the racist myths of intrinsic inferiority and criminality of black people. We have made this country our home. We cannot be pushed around or persuaded to leave. The above attitudes can only perpetuate antagonistic black-white relations. The positive alternative to this would be to accept the legitimacy of black-white conflicts and make concerted efforts to create a process in which these conflicts are constructively resolved for the betterment of the whole society. This could only be achieved through openly questioning the historical background and the present roots of racism and at the same time exposing and confronting the system's manipulation of people's fears and insecurity under capitalism. We cannot, however, go into all the details of our problems here. What we intend to show specifically is how we are prevented from participating in the cultural life of the country, which we have now made our home. If our argument is confined only to black artists whose presence in the country has been deliberately ignored, it is not because the problems concerning black artists are more important than, the, than those of black people at large. The problematic situation of black artists, in fact, reflects a social attitude which affects all of us black people. We cannot therefore separate black artists from the, from the total context of blacks in this country. The door which is shut on our faces by a white landlady is also the door which opens to the art establishment. Now, how does the attitude of the British art establishment towards blacks differ from the general one? 
This would be better understood if we recognise that the art establishment in general and its official public bodies in particular act as a mechanism to regulate art and cultural activities and thereby assert control over them. Therefore, the function of the art establishment cannot be separated from the ideology of the system. In other words, if racism is part and parcel of the system, it cannot be absent from the components that regulate its art and cultural activities. Kenneth Coutsmith, writing in the catalogue introduction to Second Commonwealth Biennial of, of Abstract Art, Commonwealth Institute London, 1965 said, some years ago, Commonwealth artists were arriving to London to work and establish a name and found themselves in somewhat of a, of a difficult position. Except in very rare instances, they were receiving little or no support from the art authorities in their home countries. At the same time, the official bodies in this country by the very structures of their charters, were invariably unable to do much beyond offering encouragement. Emphasis added. This structure, we believe, still exists and it cannot be other than the support structure for the promotion and the development of art in Britain. In other words, it is the main the main function of the British art establishment, particularly its official bodies, to encourage, support, and thus promote the art activity of its people. The question now is, whom does it actually consider its people? The answer to this would be, of course, the British people. But this does not answer everything, because the crucial part of the whole question is, what are the, the various components that make up British society? Are we black people considered part of this, of this society? Are we black people considered part of this society or merely looked down upon as immigrant workers? Enoch Powell provides us with the, with the answer when he says, they don't belong to this country, do they? ITV 5, January 1976. We believe the art establishment does not really disagree with Powell. This becomes evident when we look into its indifference towards black artists, denying them due recognition for their art activities in Britain for the last 20 or so years. This, this was confirmed at the third regional MAAS conference on ethnic arts, London, 19 June, 1976. In answer to a complaint from a black person, one of the Arts Council representatives, Ruth Marks, bluntly remarked that the Arts Council was a traditional British institution whose function was to support its own professional artists. The implication here is, is very clear. Black artists are considered neither British nor professional by the Arts Council, and that must go for the whole art establishment. When we speak of the British art establishment, we mean the whole art establishment art galleries, museums, art magazines and books, art schools and what have you, official and private. But we are more concerned here with the Arts Council of Great Britain and the British Council, which are the main official bodies that support and promote art and cultural activity at home and abroad, respectively. These bodies are financed by public money, which must surely include the tax money from black people in British society. 
This means we, black people, are actually contributing towards the cost of running the official art bodies and thus towards the support and promotion of art culture in Britain. But what do we get ourselves in return? Nothing, or maybe some crumbs, sometimes. The official bodies would say that they do not discriminate on racial grounds. Of course, they don't have to hang a no blacks please board outside their doors. But how many black artists have ever managed to get through? If no door was ever shut on them, it was only because no door was ever opened to them. The facts speak for themselves. No black artist has ever been included in any official exhibition or survey representing the various developments of visual arts in Britain since the time we have been here, not to mention any individual show or representation abroad. If the absence of black artists from what is recognised is any indication of the real situation in Britain, then it would either mean that there are no black artists, which would again mean that we black people are not interested in art activity, or that black artists are not good enough for any consideration of the arts establishment. The truth is that the official bodies, as well as the art establishment at large, have turned a blind eye to the very presence of black artists in Britain and to their actual contributions. Furthermore, the fact that we black people also need and must have as our right official support for the development of our art and cultural activities has been deliberately ignored. Any suggestion here that the work of black artists might not have been or may not be of high standard or any significance would be nonsensical. There is enough evidence that the work of black artists can be compared with that of their white contemporaries who are recognised both nationally and internationally in spite of the fact that black artists have to work under conditions, physical as well as mental, which few white artists would ever would be able to bear for long. The art establishment does not have to have an open and declared policy which discriminates between black and white artists. But that does not necessarily mean that a mechanism of control or an attitude which denies black artists their access to art establishment and their rightful recognition does not exist. We must not forget that the institutional structure of official bodies was considerably developed and nourished at the time when Britain had a colonial empire. And since its old structure has not been changed to come to terms with the fact that blacks in Britain are no longer colonial subjects but Britain's British citizens, those controlling the official bodies and their private ones as well still act, consciously or unconsciously, with a colonial attitude towards black people. We can understand this better when we appreciate that Britain is still an imperialist power in neo-colonial sense, whose values are promoted abroad as part of its international cultural propaganda. Its promotional pattern is still based on cultural purism and exclusiveness. Its products are promoted abroad in such a way that it does not contradict the traditional British, English to be more precise, image. The British image abroad, even today, consists of a white society in which there is a small black immigrant population serving its white masters, and its creative activity must therefore be an activity which embodies white values created and defensed by white artists. One only has to look into the common pattern of British art criticism, which seldom fails to point out the Englishness of British art. And since Englishness is only identifiable with white people, ask Powell why. 
The English chauvinistic art promotion pattern ignores the art activity of black people in the country, or it relegates it to ethnic pigeonholes. The merits or demerits of the work of black artists do not even enter into the criterion of selection and recognition. The very mechanism of selection and recognition based on the idea that white artists are the only representatives of British art disqualifies black artists from being even considered before the merits or demerits of their work become evident. It is not surprising that a black artist who has lived in Britain for the last 20 years or so should strike such a pessimistic note. They can make all these noises about racism, racism but when it comes to the crunch, they will only push their own boys. For an exhibition in Milan, Arte Inglese Oggi, 1960-1976, which was supposed to represent the various developments of art in Britain during that period, is not only an example of English art chauvinism, but also a deliberate misrepresentation of the actual picture by perpetuating the lie that contemporary art in Britain is the privilege of whites only. The very title of the exhibition excludes black participation. One wonders in this respect if there has been a single protest from Welsh, Irish, and Scottish artists who have all been thus lumped together as English, unless none of them was included in the exhibition. Or is it a part of their careerism not to question English domination? There is no doubt that the official attitude has contributed largely to the perpetuation of a white monopoly of the British art scene. And in this respect, the public bodies have proved themselves incompetent in discharging their duties. They have in fact misused all those funds which should have actually been utilized for the development and promotion of the activities of black people in this country. In view of the fact that we black people live, work, and pay our taxes in Britain and thereby contribute not only towards the running of the country, but also to its art and cultural institutions, we must demand not as charity or special favor, but as our right and share full recognition of all our activities. We must have the right to be shown in all official exhibitions and galleries without any delay and excuse. We must be paid full remuneration for our work and efforts. The Arts Council sponsored report, The Arts Britain Ignores by Nassim Khan, which has been published recently, does not present a true and full picture. It has not only divided black people into black and Asian groups, as if Asians are not blacks, but pigeonholed their activities into various ethnic categories thus relegating them to a subcultural level. It seems to have concluded that black artists have not yet done anything worthwhile outside the narrow boundaries of their ethnic traditions. This must be partly due to the lack of information about the activities of black artists and or the result of the author's own presumptions. It also appears to be an attempt now in the face of our growing demands for equal opportunities to pigeonhole us in such a way as to leave the white population free of the fear of black competition, particularly in the field which most white artists consider their exclusive monopoly, the British mainstream. The issue here is not and should not be the ethnicity of black activity, one could also say that English art is ethnic. The question here 
really is why black activity is being relegated to a subcultural level. We must not accept our separate categorization in order to receive some crumbs. We must demand full recognition of our equal status. It is the concept of mainstream which must be changed to meet the new demands of the society and not the other way around if we want to avoid the pitfalls of cultural bantu stands in Britain. Towards third world art movements. The prerequisite for the indigenous developments of contemporary art in the third world is a confrontation with those forces which have, in the first place, caused its underdevelopment and are today actively obstructing its post-colonial regeneration. We cannot expect the indigenous art to flourish under the imposing shadow of an alien culture, and this shadow is not going to disappear until the tree of imperialism is uprooted from our soil. But foreign domination cannot be effectively got rid of as long as there exists a system in the third world, and for that matter in the West as well, that demands its continual presence, physical as well as mental. Although our commitments lie mainly within the domain of art, this cannot be isolated from life at large and this struggle for its constant transformation. Particularly when the present problems of our art and culture are essentially part of the predicaments of the people violently subjective to foreign domination and their struggle against it, our art activity cannot be removed from this reality. Our art must be, therefore be oriented towards anti-imperialist struggle it does not necessarily mean that art should become a, a mechanistic instrument of ideological and political struggle. It should be part of the historical process in its own right, making its own contributions. That is, art must also wage struggle against domination and reactionary forces and ideas within its own sphere, without being discarded for political activity and without being separated from it. It is not a question of political art, but an art which embraces the radical consciousness of its time. Those political activists or ultra leftists who see art only, art only as an instrument of political reality and its propaganda and keep on reminding us about the uselessness of art activity as opposed to political activity are only revealing their own philistinism if not actually betraying a lack of understanding of the true function of art as well as its limitations. The real function of art of course is neither a mere expression of beauty, self, decoration or entertainment as it is commonly understood, nor political propaganda. But this does not mean that art can be apolitical or neutral. In other words, Art cannot but reflect an ideology, no matter how implicit it is, unless art can be emptied of all ideas and meanings, which is impossible. The so-called neutrality of art can only mask its sterility or an attitude that actually serves the interests of an ideology or a class. Art cannot be, moreover, autonomous of culture. The myth of universal art perpetrated by various art movements in the West in this century, but now, must now be debunked. Behind this facade of universal, universality lay the desire to impose Western values on the rest of the world. The fact is that the conditions under which Western art 
has been developing and flourishing are very different from those of the third world. The art of the society whose material foundation is laid on the exploitation of other people cannot be at the same time an expression of exploited people. While the development of art of a dominant society derives its energies, its dynamism from its power to expand beyond its own boundaries and impose its values on the people whom it does dominate and exploits, the art of the dominated people cannot but reflect their own predicament, including their resistance to foreign culture. The question of how to resist and confront domination and the values forms with which perpetrate it becomes central here. This would naturally require, on the one hand, a thorough and critical examination of the various aspects of Western civilization, its art and culture, and on the other, developing our own methods and forms of art cultural activity, which not only expose the insidious aims of Western cultural penetration in the third world, but also confront it effectively. This cannot be achieved, however, by ignoring 20th century developments in the West and looking exclusively to our own past traditions for the solutions to contemporary problems. Nostalgic return to our past forms would be tantamount to an avoidance of the situation, which demands action against what is dominant and what is dominating us today. We must stay in the contemporary battlefield and fight for our liberation with all means available, the traditional as well as the modern technological. Cultural imperialism makes use of the most sophisticated technological means to dominate us. To confront this would require not necessarily the same sophisticated technology, but a similar methodology, incorporating our own forms as well as those of others, resulting into antithesis. The rejection of modern knowledge and its various forms in favor of indigenous traditions is based on an ignorance or a misconception that attributes modern developments exclusively to Western history. It is important to remember that Afro-Asian peoples had actually developed considerable knowledge before it was taken over by the West at the beginning of this modern era, about five, six centuries ago. Even during the colonial period when the third world people were deliberately prevented from any direct participation in modern developments, they did contribute significantly to the historical process. Modern knowledge now belongs to all humanity, but it does not mean that we, in the name of progress or modernism, must accept the imposition of Western values on us, or that we must concede to Western cultural hegemony in contemporary life. It is up to us and us alone to make use of all available knowledge in our own contemporary developments. The knowledge gained from the period when our, de- when our own developments were suppressed and when the developments in the West assimilated our art and cultural traditions could be very useful. It does not necessarily mean that we shall go through a process of learning how to paint or sculpt in Western styles, nor that our contemporary developments should be dependent on Western models. But it is important to be aware of the history of the culture which surrounds us today, And only then, by being in a position to separate its positive and negative aspects, can we accept or reject it. Our own traditions are, indeed, our assets. And to ignore them would be tantamount to a rejection of our own history and our own identity as a people. But to go back now to our ethnic past and paint or sculpt like our ancestors used to do, 
would be a backward step. Mere reminders of our past glories can disregard contemporary reality, denying us the driving force of moving forward. The essence of our past must, of course, be fully grasped by looking into how and why certain forms developed in certain periods and what were their relations with socioeconomic forces. And if the traditional forms have survived as part of our present life, they must be given a new dimension to play a role in our developments today. However, this can only happen as part of a historical development of our own productive forces, giving birth to new ideas, concepts, values, forms, and symbols that reflect the new and changing reality. What is important now is not what we were in the past, but what we are today. Whether we live in our own countries of origin or in the West, neither a mechanistic revival of our traditional forms nor a trailing behind on the paths formed by the so-called historical styles of Western art can offer us a positive direction. While rejecting both these options, but still finding ourselves surrounded and dominated by the forces which either demand our return to ethnic traditions or make us accept the hegemony of Western developments, we have no choice but to oppose them both. And out of this confrontation will emerge new forms that truly reflect our particularity in the world today. We are no longer national entities in the literal sense of the word. The problems facing us today are not necessarily of national di dimensions or characteristics. They are in fact the consequences of the dominating forces internationally unleashed by the West. Our efforts while containing individual national elements must therefore transcend both individual and national boundaries to reflect upon the international aspect of our predicaments and to come to terms with a situation that demands solidarity amongst all the peoples who are struggling against the same enemy. The third world must evolve its own independent identity, which cannot be, of course, homogenous but in its formal diversities, it must embody and express its underlying unity based on the common historical past and the present reality of underdevelopment, quote unquote. Also reflecting its unified opposition to Western domination. From the problematic situation of the third world must emerge an international movement, which is different from and in opposition to Western art. This would, of course, require the development of our own international platform or communication gallery network through which we could exchange our ideas directly without Western intermediaries' interference, creating historic links between the peoples whose emergence can offer a new hope to all mankind. While coming to terms with the modern technological age and our own contemporary reality, which must involve a search for new methods and forms, beyond the narrow, obsolete concept of art, based on the Western tradition of purity of painting slash sculpture or craftsmanship, and the content of which must be oriented towards our own cultural situation. We must avoid the pitfalls of the stylistic sectarianism, which has been one of the hallmarks of the Western avant-garde. The struggle between different styles for so-called historical primacy is one of the characteristics, if not the dynamic, of contemporary art in the West, perpetuating aggressive competition between individuals for recognition. No wonder that the dominant ideology lays so much emphasis on the identity of the individual through one's work, 
which is actually realized by turning a particular style slash form into a precious pedestal on which its innovator, the artist, must stand, maintaining the consistent position for the identification to be established. The artist's inflated ego, a result of alienation, it also provides one with special material benefits and social privileges, a formal style which must be the function of a content, thus becomes content itself, thereby leading the artist into a formalist cocoon in which he slash she is perpetually trapped, isolated from the grasp of an actual and changing reality outside. The Western avant-garde is, however, nearly reaching the end of its bourgeois cul-de-sac. On the one hand, there is a wild talk about the end of art, as if art cannot exist or flourish outside bourgeois art history. On the other, the new quote-unquote radicals, in their last and desperate attempts to keep clinging on to art history by perpetuating the so-called evolution of historical styles, are even grabbing whatever material or forms they can get hold of from their flirtation with Marxism, class struggle, the predicament of dominated people, etc., manipulating them only to perpetuate a new formalism. The radical polemics slash rhetoric of most Western artists, however, is not applicable to third world conditions. We ourselves do not need to look for any material outside our own existential reality which is in fact part of our people's predicaments. We do not have any art historical acts to grind. We have no art historical pedestal to stand on and defend bourgeois values or preach sermons about beauty and aesthetics, nor shall we indulge in the futile activity of art for art's sake. Our history is in fact the history of the pillage and plundering by colonialism. We must grasp this truth and turn it into a weapon of our cultural struggle. From centuries of oppressed existence, from the wilderness of colonialism, the third world must now emerge like a black phoenix rising from white ashes. Quote, it is necessary to totally destroy, to break, to reduce to ash all aspects of colonial state in our country in order to make everything possible for our people. End quote. Amilcar Cabral. It does not follow from this that we must cut off ourselves from the activities of our Western contemporaries, particularly those who are also aware of their role in society and are aiming at, the radical, at a radical change. Since many of us live in the West, we must avoid isolation and separatism, which is no recipe for the positive development of a society in which all people, irrespective of race and color, must interrelate. But in the present situation, it is very difficult so long as Western people speak from their privileged positions and with their usual paternalistic attitude and arrogance, there is no possibility whatsoever for the development of a real dialogue between them and us. The development of a true international platform slash movement from, from slash to which all cultures can make their unique contributions is not only possible but desirable in the long run. But if this is to serve the true interests of all peoples rather than become another instrument of selfish Western interest, it must be based on the clear rejection of Western art history as the mainstream. The subjective conditions of the affluent Western society, particularly when these conditions have been achieved at the expense of the majority of the people in the world, cannot offer a truly international perspective. 
The concept of individual geniuses as the creators, looking down on the rest of the people as being incapable of an art or creative activity, is another aspect of the dominant ideology. The present relationship between an individual as a creator and the people as mere consumers must therefore be questioned. What we could instead do as culture, art workers in the present transition, before a new society emerges in which art and culture shall be collectively developed and created, is to initiate activity which is taken up critically by people, and the eventual development or completion of the work must depend on their actual participation slash contribution. It ought to be made clear that this work is not meant to be an objective analysis, It is mainly a personal statement by a third world man who, as a result of being uprooted by cultural imperialism from his Asian environment, was sucked into the Western world where he has spent a considerable part of his life in pursuit of freedom of artistic expression in what he has now come to realize is a white man's world. The experience of living in the West has led him to black consciousness and to the awareness that his real place is in the third world. This is an attempt now on his part to re-examine his relationship with the West and redefine his artistic role in the cultural context of his people, whether they live in their own countries or in the West. A third world praxis. No recipes or prescriptions are being offered here. We must not believe in ready-made solutions. Art cannot be developed by a set of rules, but only through an evolving life process that generates new ideas at every stage of its transformation. Therefore, the suggestions here are not meant to be taken as canons to be followed or guidelines for the production of art. They may in fact trap us, if followed mechanistically, into a dogmatic, formalistic situation, stifling our imagination and energies. Nevertheless, it's hoped that these notes will initiate a discussion from which may emerge a clearer picture, providing us with a starting point in a direction towards a new dynamism, which helps us liberate our energies and awaken us from our present lethargic generality. The success of this will, of course, will depend on the imaginative and creative response from the third world people, particularly black people, who may also be thinking in the same way but have not yet come forward or did not have an opportunity to express their ideas. Cultural imperialism cannot be dealt with by making appeals to its liberal conscience or pretended humanity. So long as we look to others for the solutions of our own problems, and no matter how much noise we make, we will only be ignored or pushed around. We must, we must ourselves take a concrete step These notes are therefore being offered as a prelude to a work whose realization and completion depends on all of us together, including our Western comrades. The conceptual structure of the proposed work can therefore be laid down in the following order. Initiative slash writing of this prelude, contact with people through its publication, participation by people in the form of their critical intervention, unification of all the material thus created by being published together as a completed work, art book, recontact, return of the completed work to the participants, propagation, general distribution of the work, and so on. Would you therefore send your contributions in the form of words and images relating to the cultural problems of the third world? 
keeping in mind that the aim of the work is the denunciation of and confrontation with imperialist culture and the system that perpetuates international domination. Your contributions may also include constructive criticism of the work. The visual images may be produced, for example, by collective actions, events, etc., against the cultural strongholds of the system and by documenting them photographically. The decision how to act or what to contribute, however, entirely lies with you. The material thus received, comprising of statements, criticism, photographic documentation, will, it is hoped, be published, depending on the availability of publisher or money, as a completed black manifesto, and the copies sent to the participants, who must also send their names and addresses, courtesy of Black Phoenix, London, 1975 to 76.